This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. All this week, we're taking stock of the biggest stories that shaped our year. And in sport, after years of silence brought by COVID, the games and the crowds are back. Today, Guardian Australia's sport editor, Mike Heitner, joins me to talk about the future of football in Australia after the FIFA World Cup, the sports stars walking away at their peak, and Australia's big sporting wins in 2022. All that in a moment. So, Mike, it's been an incredibly busy year in sport. There's been a backlog of events and seasons after COVID. I know at one point there were about four World Cups that you were trying to cover at the same time. (laughs) What were some highlights of the year for you? First one that that really kind of stood out for me um, and really kind of imprinted itself on my my memory was Buddy Franklin's 1,000th goal for the Sydney Swans at the SCG. It was the anticipation of it as well that stood out for me. Um, You know, he went into that game four short of his 1,000th AFL goal. Uh, and slowly but surely, you know, he kicked his, you know, 997th and the 998th and then the 999th. And you could just feel like the anticipation building. Seven minutes. The people knew it was going to be an incredible moment. For Buddy Franklin to kick a goal. And then when the thousandth came round, it's almost like the crowd went silent as the ball hit his boot and then sailed off in between the posts. Now they can split it wide. Numbers four to the ball here. Warner, surely he looks for number 23, got him on short, and he's got it, bud. Right, I've seen videos of all the fans just swarming onto the field. It was just an incredible moment in time. Look at it, everyone's charging down. That, I dare say, will never be repeated. Uh, we've seen those kind of scenes before. They're, they're frankly, like, hugely dangerous as well. Outside of AFL, what were some other big wins? Um, I thought the Australian uh, women's cricket team winning 50 over World Cup was another really memorable moment for me. Uh, This team is just an incredibly dominant team, not only in this format, but in the uh, T20 format as well. When they won the ODI World Cup, they were in the middle of an unbeaten run which stretched pretty much all year and was only broken just the other day um, with a T20 defeat in India. And, you know, I wonder if we're ever going to see a team as dominant as this. I'm just really um, excited to see where they go in this next year as well. Mm -hmm. Steph Gilmore made history this year, winning uh, a record eighth world surf title. Uh, In doing so, she became the the most successful female surfer of all time, surpassing Mm. even the great Lane Beachley. Lane's reaction to as well and... um, I don't know. Can I I swear? She she came out. You uh, may swear. Yeah, fucking legend. um, (laughs) She said uh, when she posted on Instagram, and it just speaks to like the 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 support, the camaraderie, and the camaraderie um, within that sport and uh, and that group. Uh, And then I don't think we can look past um, Nick Kyrgios either, who love him or loathe him. He's entertaining, and his run to the Wimbledon final this year also stood out for me. Right, and this is all before. The FIFA World Cup even kicked off last month. This cup was such a big moment for the Socceroos. Did anyone expect them to do so well, as well as they did? 
I didn't. I'll be I'll be absolutely honest, and I don't think I'm alone in saying that. This group was not a uh, a classic generation of uh, Australian footballers, um, mm. unlike in in 2006 when they also reached the last 16, and that was hailed as a as a huge success story at the time. Um, that generation was a real golden generation with the likes of Tim Cahill and Harry Kuehl and Mark Viduka. This time round. They absolutely exceeded expectations by getting to the last 16, not only getting to the last 16 and equaling the 2006 Vintage's performance, but but winning two games on the way there, mm. scoring goals um, uh, and, and playing with, a, with you know, that kind of intangible Aussie DNA, as the coach Graham and Arnold would, would call it. Um, but that served them well. You know, they played some excellent teams. Uh, and they held their own against them, not least in the in the last 16 against Argentina. Yeah, I even cracked an eye open at 6am after a night out to watch Qual nearly, nearly bring it home for Australia, which was just exhilarating. The margin between going out at that stage and losing to, to Argentina or taking them to extra time and going potentially to the lottery of a, a penalty shootout was so fine. This this is... This is why football is such a great game. This is why sport is so great. The the, the margins can be so fi- so fine between success and failure, and the Socceroos were very very nearly there. I mean, can you imagine what would have happened if one of those had gone in and the unthinkable had happened? Mm. Well, the fans erupted as the referee blew the full time whistle. I think everyone got behind the Socceroos at this tournament, which is obviously not something that usually is experienced in in football and in Australia, uh, kind of on a on a national level like that. Um, we see it generally once every every four years um, when people jump on the bandwagon. Um, but you know the scenes in Federation Square in Melbourne, for example, at two a.m. when uh, one of the games kicked off. These were the scenes at Federation Square in Melbourne. And it was absolutely packed. They were ripping flares. They were singing. Mm. You know, though, that kind of atmosphere is unique to the game of football, even mm. even in this country. With such success from this World Cup, though, has come the inevitable question, what next for soccer, aka football, in Australia? We've heard a lot of calls for better funding, especially for the A-League, considering that some of the Socceroos came from, you know, the National Men's League. Is there a disconnect between this World Cup fever and the support that it gets back home. I think that's that's pretty clear. But football is on this perpetual boom and bust cycle. The booms are linked to World Cup campaigns, and in between, it's just periods of, of bust. And people get interested when the Socceroos qualify for a World Cup, uh, and, and rightly so. You know, you don't have to be a football fan like, all year round, every single year. Mm. People are talking about it on, on breakfast TV. Politicians are wearing Socceroo scarves in in Parliament, and that's all well and good. But the million dollar question is, how do you convert that interest that comes around once every four years into sustained interest and growth in the game? Which then, obviously, will the knock on effects of that will be that the Socceroos and the Matildas will get more successful, and you know it's a self sustaining cycle once you break into it. But they've never been able to find the magic ingredient. Mm, what are some of the big barriers there? What are some of the issues that they, they're failing to address? Well, we've, we've seen it before. I mean, after there was a similar situation after 2006 uh, with the Men's World Cup. Uh, there was a similar situation where um, there, was, there was great optimism after the 2015 Asian Cup, which was played on, on home soil and won by the Socceroos. Um, and 
our deputy sport editor, Emma Kemp, wrote very well on on this during the World Cup um, when she was in Doha. And she said that, you know, the, the, for 16 years as administrators, players, coaches and supporters have tried to grow the game, but been curtailed by various forces. One was a ca- catastrophic World Cup bid, um, which of course was for, for this World Cup that was in Qatar where millions and millions of dollars were were wasted on a on a bid that we never really um were going to win in the first place. Mm. Emma also says that there's been a lack of appropriate development pathways to prevent children with the right skill set from being poached by other sports. Now the last point's really important, I feel. Um we saw it with one of the breakout stars of of this World Cup, Karan Kowal, mm. who is a South Sudanese refugee um, and possibly the brightest um, future star in Australian men's football. I've always wanted to play for the Socceroos, but um, never thought it would happen so so early. So just a proud moment for me and my family. And yeah, I want to inspire young children to dream big and sky's the limit. He's won a, a, a transfer to... English Premier League side Newcastle United in January he's very much on the up but the game could easily have lost Kowal to the AFL because there was a point in his life where merely playing for a club became too expensive and this is one of the major points that needs to be made and needs to be addressed it's that football for despite being such a simple game to play I mean, you literally need a few jumpers as goalposts and a, and a football that's all you need effectively but rego fees are so astronomically high; it's becoming a, it's putting a barrier in place, mm. um, especially for you know low-income communities, many you know refugee communities. Um, it's just simply be, it's too expensive. I think in the wake of this cup, there's been a lot of talk about trying to fix these fundamental problems. Is this the moment? Is this actually the turning point where these problems start to be addressed? I think this is this is the hope that this is the the day of reckoning. Certainly, uh, post World Cup, there was a big conversation about how to fix the funding problem in uh, in Australian football. Uh, and last week, we saw a, a multi million dollar deal struck between the um, Australian Professional Leagues, which is the uh, this kind of new uh, body that looks after the A leagues, and the New South Wales government. Well, the A-Leagues has announced the biggest change to its grand final in the competition's history with Sydney locked in to host the showpiece for the next three years. The decision has outraged some fans, but the CEO insists it's necessary for the growth of the game. Locking in the final to Sydney for the next three years has been incredibly controversial. Usually the final is hosted by the team, which is the, the highest placed team in the grand final, but the decision outraged many fans and uh, almost immediately plans were put in place to um, protest uh, last weekend's games. Many supporter groups agreed that they would walk out around the 20-minute mark of all the games um, during this A-League men's round. And the idea was for peaceful protests to send a real message to the APL that the fans weren't happy with this situation. Unfortunately, how things panned out was very much different. The pitch invasion that has horrified soccer fans around the world, instead of a promised walkout, flares were thrown onto the pitch at both ends. Um, As we've seen, the Melbourne derby between Victory and City descended into absolute chaos on Saturday night. And when City goalkeeper Tom Glover tossed a flare back, a mob stormed the field. Fans stormed the pitch and actually attacked the Melbourne City goalkeeper Thomas Glover um, the match referee uh, was also injured along with a camera operator and two security guards it later turns out this was clearly the last thing that Australian football wanted 
or needed. And there's a real sense among the football community that this has just ruined many, many years of hard work to, to, to make the, the game relevant in this country um, and to uh, to get rid of old preconceptions about what the game is, um, you know, and its associations with hooliganism, if you want to use that word, and violence. Um, many years of hard work were just ruined in a single moment. It's really disappointing and really quite sad for football fans. Next, tennis turmoil, sports stars in the spotlight, and what to watch in 2023. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here. If you're enjoying Full Story, I think you'll really like another podcast we make here at Guardian Australia called Book It In. On Book It In, some of Australia's favourite authors open up about the ideas behind their books in personal and thought-provoking conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. This week, you'll hear historian Rachel Franks talk about what it's like living in the head of a real-life hangman in colonial Australia who also had a missing nose. So here is this guy with the absolute worst job on the government books and he gets stressed every day and he takes the shame of his profession, he takes the taunting of children because of his disfigurement and nothing really stops him from going to work and still trying to be the best employee that he can be. Subscribe now to Book It In on your favourite podcast player and listen to this episode with Rachel Franks on Thursday. So apart from football, we've had some other enormous events on Australian soil, namely the Australian Open at the start of the year, which generated international scandal when Novak Djokovic, the world men's number one, was deported from Australia and not allowed to play due to our vaccination rules at the time. That just feels like a lifetime ago now, There's Mike. no way that happened in 2022. It did. <laughs> no, no, no. That was like three years ago. <laughs> Would that happen again right now? <laughs> well, no. We've seen that um, Djokovic is um, is being allowed back into the country in, in January, uh, in the new year, for um, another Australian Open title tilt. I'm very hungry to prove that I can, I'm still one of the best players in the world, that I can win big trophies. So see you in Australia. Which is, which is great news for, for tennis fans. Um, but it also reflects the overall situation of COVID mm. uh, at the moment. The world we, we find ourselves in that um, sporting events are, are back up and running, restriction-free. Djokovic wasn't the only big tennis story of the year. There were so many others, but probably my favourite was Ash Barty. We saw her take out the Australian Open in January and then she made this shock announcement just a few months later. I'll be retiring from tennis and... It's the first time I've actually said it out loud and, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. But I'm so happy and I'm so ready. I was astounded by that, that someone would retire at their peak. Did it come as a shock to you, Mike? Of course it was a shock. It came, it came out of the blue. As you say, she was at her peak. She was world number one. Mm. Everything ahead of her uh, in terms of, of, of tennis, greatness. Um, but then, you know, after the event, you kind of... You analyse the reasons for it. She talks about it, gives her reasons why she made that decision. Mm. And of course, it's it's completely understandable. She spoke about how, you know, she wanted to walk away, not for any dislike of the sport or because of any sort of traumatic incident, but because she had other passions in her life that she wanted to pursue, which really 
makes a lot of sense when you think about it. You just don't hear people doing that that much. I want to I want to chase after some other dreams that that I've always wanted to do and always have that really healthy balance. That stands in stark contrast to what we've seen with some other athletes in the past year or so who are walking away or taking time out because they're just burned out. Are we seeing a bit of a reckoning over the mental and physical toll that top athletes face? It's getting a lot easier for athletes to open up and be uh, more aware of their mental health and be aware of the pressures of their profession and how that is affecting them. Uh, and in turn, it's, it's becoming easier for them to to take breaks and, and look after themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think as well, in wider society, it's becoming more acceptable to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've seen it a number of times with big, big names. And obviously the big, big names are under increasingly huge amounts of pressure. But we've seen Simone Biles talk about this, Naomi Osaka talking about it as well, uh, Ben Stokes in cricket as well, Ben Simmons has spoken about his uh, mental health as well. Whether it's a reckoning or not, but there's definitely more of a, there's more awareness of it, both from athletes and in the media and their reporting of it. The more this happens, I feel the the better it will be for all concerned. There is so much pressure, not only to play well, but also to kind of stand up for what you believe in and become a bit of a, a spokesperson, I suppose. We saw this play out really recently in netball with Noongar woman, Danelle Wallam. Can you remind people what happened there? Netball Australia, the the game's governing body, is is short of cash. You know, uh, COVID hit the the sport fairly hard, and they were they were in need of a huge cash injection. They found this through a sponsorship with Hancock Prospecting, the mining company led by Gina Reinhart. Um, Gina Reinhart's father, Lang Hancock, had given uh, an interview many years uh, before his death which voiced his abhorrent attitudes towards Indigenous Australians. Mm. Whilst the money was going to be very well received, and much needed money, Donnell Wallam voiced her concerns to her teammates uh, privately. Donnell's views were entirely justified. She did not want the publicity that came with it at all. She didn't do it for any of those reasons. She did it because that's how she felt. Her teammates stood by her and a collective stand was made to Netball Australia um, over the sponsorship deal. Mm. Now, what eventually happened was um, uh, amid huge media uh, scrutiny and coverage, in the end, it was Hancock Prospecting that pulled their sponsorship from Netball Australia in the end. That funding shortfall was later made up by the Victorian government, but at the time, this announcement and the negative media attention for Donnell put her under immense pressure. How did she respond to that? So this was all going on against a backdrop of Danelle being called into the Diamond Squad for the first time. She'd never played for for Australia before. She was a late bloomer, as it were. But she got called into the squad uh, to make her debut with all that media spotlight on her, with everything that had gone in the week previously. Mm. She then stepped onto court and let her netball do the talking. Of, of course, she ended up being the match winner, um, scoring a brilliant layup goal right at the death to, to to beat England. In the eyes of some, she's cost Australian netball millions. In the eyes of others, she's just won them a test. 
I mean, you couldn't help but get carried away with what you were watching. I was kind of relieved to finally get my chance on court. Um, yeah, it's been one of the toughest few weeks of my life, so um, to finally get out there and just play in this dress was just really special. And... I cried. <laughs> I know I've got form with uh, big sporting moments, um, as anyone who listened to last year's review will know. Uh, but it was I actually didn't cry when, actually at that moment, it was only later when somebody on Twitter had put the moment to the Titanic music. <laughs> and it was just, it was just this perfect moment, perfect soundtrack to it. That's some of the biggest moments of 2022, definitely not all, but let's look forward to 2023. What are you looking forward to covering? What are you looking forward to going and seeing in person maybe? I'm looking forward to a holiday. <laughs> um, but other than that, um, I mean, the big one next year to, to look forward to is the, the Women's Football World Cup, mm-hmm. which is being played on home soil and in, in New Zealand. Um, and, you know, we've been talking about, you know, how the game can capitalise on the momentum of the Socceroos at the, the World Cup in Qatar. I mean, this is this could not be a better opportunity to grow the game, grow interest in the game in this country. Mm. We've got the World Cup for the first time, men's or women's in Australia. Some of the best players, well, all the best players in the world descending on our shores. And it's, you know, for me, it's just a huge opportunity that can't be wasted. And this is the real kind of litmus test, really, to see exactly where football is going to go in this country. It's, it's happening in, in July next year. But of course, before that, we've got the, both the A-League men and women uh, continuing. And it's a real, it's a really great opportunity to go and watch the lights of, of Grand Kowal um, play before he heads off to the UK. Um, and, you know, uh, other players as well, you know, World Cup goal scorers like Craig Goodwin, mm. um, they're, they're here to watch. And there are two Ashes series, um, one for the men and one for the women in June later on this year. Is it going to be as frantic a year as 2022? I don't think so, but that's really stupid to say that because now I've said it, it probably will. Something will happen. Uh, you cursed yourself for the gonna, next year. My prediction, here you go, Sam Kerr's going to retire. She's going to win the uh, the Ballon d'Or and then retire instantly at the top of her career. That'll, that'll cap it all off. <laughs> <laughs> That was Mike Heidner, sport editor of Guardian Australia. We've linked to some of the standout reporting from our sport and general reporting team on the Full Story page, including a piece by our deputy sport editor, Emma Kemp, on the future of football after the World Cup, which is really worth a read. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert, Krishma Luthria and Ellen Lee Beater. Sound design and mixing by Camilla Hannon. The executive producer of this episode was me, Laura Murphy-Oates. Okay, catch you tomorrow.